welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. Uh, in this episode, we'll be discussing Baptism of Fire, Chapter 4, and I am joined again by Joshua Rapier. Hello. Back to my favorite book club. <laughs> so you um, you did not go for the chapter I was expecting you to go for. You went for the chapter afterwards. Indeed I did, yeah. Yes. Uh, so um, my, my first real question really is... Um, about this chapter in particular, what drew you to this? Because I was fully expecting the Mandrake chapter to be the one you hop on. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And those of you, it means you know me well. I do love a scene where all the characters get royally, you know, high off their heads. <laughs> but uh, you can't beat a hangover scene the day after. That's always fun. Uh, but in all seriousness, what drew me to this scene was the vampire hunt and the witch burning. So, like, the real world, you know, murderous sham that was the witch trials is this real ugly blemish in both British and American history. Uh, it's one oh. I studied a lot on at school, you know, mainly because of The Crucible by Arthur Miller. You know, it's a massively culturally significant play. So I studied that for my English exams. Uh, you know, all about the Salem witch trials. You get to really learn, you know, through that, through that spectrum of that story, just the horrors of it all. Uh, and it's a topic that really fascinates me in a morbid way. You know, how idiotic, misogynistic, and hypocritical the, the whole shit show was. You know, to me, those kind of stories are fables and how people just twist facts, target the people who want, you know, just to hurt or destroy, sometimes like real petty reasons like, oh, they're sleeping with my man, or oh, they just have a vagina, they're automatically, you know, whores of Satan, you know, shit like that. Mm -hmm. So to see that kind of setting be transplanted into all of The Witcher, it just made perfect sense to me. It's very in line with the, the themes of the series, like, you know, um, sexism and the us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. And it's just great to see, you know, Geralt and the squad just rock up to that kind of witch trial and just be like, this is a load of bullshit and just point out every single, you know, irrefutable proof that the so you know, the priest has and just says, well, you're, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. There's a lot of dark humor to it, to which I, I really love in anything. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's that wonderful bit between Regis and Dandelion where they're like, oh, I guess this is a dilemma. I suspect he thinks about, uh, you know, the nether regions quite a lot, actually. Maybe <laughs> some with teeth. Yes. Uh, and, and then, the semen has gone to his vein. Yes. And then when he has, when the priest has his spiel about, I lost my job to a woman and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Dandelion, oh, we were wrong. It's about power. And Zoltan's like, yeah. and money, and money. <laughs> Um, and it, you know, w one lovely thing about this book, like, it's not my favorite out of the series, but it is a very good one, um, is that it's got a very much a, uh, D&D party feel to it. I was gonna say that when we get to the, the next chapter, yeah, it's definitely got that vibe. Yeah, like, it, it's just a group of friends gallivanting around and encountering weird things, dealing with their own personal problems, but also being a group of lads, and it's great. Yeah. And, um, you know, as an avid D&D player, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and Sapkowski himself is also a D&D uh, uh, player. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, like, it, 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 it all fits in with that vibe. And on the more serious side with your uh, talk about the witch trials, a, a major theme of this entire chapter, especially, is superstition and reality. Um, mm -hmm. and how they mirror and distract each other. We open with, uh, about vampires. Um, you know, the excerpt is about vampires, and it's about how they're the living dead, and, uh, and how garlic can scare them off, and, uh, then it's like, the, the, the vampire wasn't at all afraid of the garlic. He said, thank you for seasoning yourselves. <laughs> and, uh, and then we get to the, the witch stuff, uh, as well as um, with uh, Geralt and his perceptions, um, it, it, it perceptions of him, his perceptions of people, for instance, in the refugee camp, uh, when they first get there, you know, no one really wants to um, uh, thank Zoltan and his caravan mm -hmm. for helping them. But this little girl comes in and says, thank you. Thank you for saving me and my family and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that scene really shows that... Um, you know, these kind of superstitions, this kind of hatred, this kind of bigotry is a learned skill, yeah. not something that's innate. And so the child who has no basis for this just sees a helpful hand. 
And so she goes and thanks them. Yeah, it's a real lovely moment. Plus, it's cute. You know, she calls Dandelion Uncle Dandelion, and that, <laughs> that was always going to melt my heart. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's a real bittersweet moment that you know the these you know this group of adults don't even acknowledge all the hard work Zoltan and the caravan has done for them because you know they're they're not human or they're you know they're warrior sluts and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, as you say, you know, babies aren't born with bigotry. You know, babies, you know, they laugh naturally. You know, so, you know, they're born with, you know, let's say jo- an inherent joy, but not an inherent hatred or anything. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's sad. And that's what you get when you grow up. Mm-hmm. And we see that, like, you, you would expect, you know, a refugee camp in the middle of a massive war, you know, it's a lot of people who are desperate and, uh, you know, need help uh, mentally, physically, etc. Meanwhile, you have the people taking advantage of that. Um, mm. you, got, you got the people selling oats for horses at ridiculously high prices. You got a guy whoring out his daughter. You mm-hmm. got, uh, you know, you, you got uh, supplies are uh, in high demand, so the prices just keep rationing up and up and up and up. And uh, Zoltan even says, I'm surprised we don't have to pay just to stand here. Yeah. Um. And so you get this, you know, the the superstitions and reality of the way our expectations are of one thing, how reality changes those expectations, um, and how the twain sometimes meet, but usually don't. Mm. Um. And uh, you know, he, you know, th- this entire you know book is mostly them walking through war zones. And uh, one thing I talked about in the previous chapters was how Sapkowski never, ever shows us frontline action. Um, it's always the after effects or people escaping the frontline actions. Mm. The, the one time he will is in another book, and it's done in a particular way. Um, it's always from, you know, the, the way in which people are uh, monsters to each other win times of desperation and how people will take advantage of that desperation. Uh, Geralt has a wonderful line in this uh, chapter where he, uh, where they were talking about the increased monster attacks, and he says that this is a war zone, and a large majority of them, uh, you know, uh, uh, monsters aren't responsible for the attacks. A lot of monster attacks can be attributed to dogs who were once domesticated and now become wild because they've lost their owners. Um, and uh, Basically, that our expectations of a great and glorious battle is antithetical to what war actually does. Mm. Um, and so, once again, that that superstition and reality, the expectation and reality. So, um, you know, what what is your thoughts on all that? On how that contrasts? Well, it's like you know, even at the end of the world, capitalism is gonna still be kicking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Zoltan says it best. He has a real stand-up moment. He talks about how he can see a bad end for the human race because every other sentient creature on this land, you know, they understand that in desperate times you've got to group together. But humanity seems obsessed with, uh, you know, they see an opportunity to make a fortune out of other people's, you know, misfortune. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that, that's sadly very relevant to real times. But it's also a nice bit of foreshadowing to the. To the next chapter, you know, as a kind of way of saying, uh, you've got to stick together, which is, which is, of course, Geralt is. It's a lesson Geralt's trying to ignore, but it's it's in, in front of his face the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it kind of parallels uh, the opening of this uh, this book was uh, when Geralt and Dandelion come across a hawker, um, and the hawkers sell weapons to any side that will buy them, but mm-hmm. specifically they sell them to the Squatel. And the hawkers are predominantly human. So the humans are selling weapons to the elves, knowing that they will kill other humans. Mm. But have no regard towards it, because it's just more money to be made. Um, you know, um, there, there's a saying, it pays you money, it takes you chances. That, uh, that the, the entire mythos of the human race is uh, not helping, it's not care, it's not anything related to compassion or empathy it's all about monetary value about the increase of one's own power uh and this you know sort of 
plays off what you were talking about last book with the objectivism stuff mm-hmm. um, of, you know, Geralt, you know, is, is all about his personal stuff, but it's never about um, selfishness in regards to power or want or money or whatever. It's just him and his family. And Zoltan has that great line a couple of chapters ago, uh, you know, about how helping everyone is just a drop in the pond uh that it means nothing but you can help in your immediate circle and you actually see the effects in hopes that they will go on to help others and thus you know the cycle of help rather than violence continues onward what i think you know is Swakowski's point in this is is all about how we have deluded ourselves into thinking that it's one or the other you can only be selfish or you can only be selfless Mm. and that there's potentially a this is more of a buddhist thing a middle path between selfishness and selflessness um and that there is uh, a way to be concerned with yourself and your own family but still be kind and compassionate towards others still be empathetic I, I think that has really come to focus, uh, especially in this book, when, you know, Geralt being who he is, especially next chapter with his stubborn rants and stuff, trying to keep people safe, not acknowledging that they're willing to help him, you know? Yeah. So we, we've gotten several new characters. Um, so what's your take on Milva? It was really this chapter that I gained more interest in her, like, at first, to me, she was just another, you know, kind of warrior-type character. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, well, with her connection to Brooklyn, it could have been neat if they brought back that dryad who was in Two Blades. Oh, was that so again? The Sword of Destiny. Her name, was it, Mor- yeah. her name was Morin. Yeah, I was thinking it could have been neat if she came back, given, you know, she has a previous connection with Geralt and Ciri. Mm. Uh, but then this scene kicks in, you know, she's hungover, she's grumpy, uh, <laughs> these bloody, you know, vampire hunting people come along they're trying to steal a horse and she's like fuck that just next a guy mm-hmm. and that's what i'm like yeah you go girl that's that's fun <laughs> you know milva has uh quite a bit going on um and uh one of the things that i think really solidifies her in with everyone else is the is the exact reverse of what you were saying about you wish it could could have been that dryad um is that she's an outsider within outsiders mm. Um, and this, if you notice, all of the Hansa or all of the company are outsiders within outsiders. Um, you know, you got Milva, who is, as aptly put by Geralt at the end of the next chapter, the dryad who isn't a dryad. <laughs> you know, um, she is a, a a human who is technically of royal birth, you know, of a at least moderately big family but you know nothing major the Bowdings, uh you know small noble family in sodden and then she uh you know ran away she became a peasant she talks like one uh, she has a particular way with words uh that is always amusing what's sad is in the english translations we don't always get her full dialect uh, the way Spikowski wrote her in the Polish original is uh, in very much in line with a lot of Polish farmers in their dialect and their syntax. Mm-hmm. That doesn't translate over the English all that well. So um, some of that is lost in translation, but there's still some of her colorful metaphors are left in. She is a royal who's not a royal. She's a dryad who's not a dryad. She's a human that helps elves. Everything about her is outsider with an outsider. Um, and... Look at Geralt. He's the the Witcher who's not a Witcher. You know he you know <laughs> he is the knight who's not a knight. Um, he's the father who's not a father. You know this is a th- this is a group, and as we'll get into the other characters, Regis, Kahir, etc. You know that they are also things that they are not, while simultaneously other things as well. They are outsiders within outsiders, or outcasts within outcasts, depending on. Uh, the way you want to say it, uh, they are the the Hansa is a group of misfits, uh, mm-hmm. and that that fits in very well with the D and D feel. Um, and Milva herself, there is a certain quality about her that I think Geralt desperately needed. She's the the, the group mom. She's 
and she's willing to call you out when you do stupid ass shit. Mm -hmm. She'll tell you as much. And uh, she does not pull it up with Geralt's stubborn, whiny, brooding bullshit. She has no time for it. I think that's the thing that connects all of them together, is that they're not having any of this shit. <laughs> um, but there's another parallel between Harn and Geralt that will be revealed later for spoiler reasons. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. She's just a whole lot of fun. She's one of my favorite characters in the, the whole saga. And um, we're going to get a character next book that calls her Auntie. And uh, she actually got called Auntie in um, this chapter by the little girl, mm -hmm. and she hated it. <laughs> um, and so imagine if there's a main character who's going to start calling her that. Um, it, it, a lot of fun. And uh, I, I also like how, you know, she she decks that guy, the, the misogynist guy, like, your place is in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. And um, she actually feels remorse when she kills him, you know, of like, but she didn't, but she thought she did. And so uh, when he's around, she has this awkward moment where she's like, not sure how to handle the situation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, she's she's a person who lets her emotions run her first before she lets her mind run her, which, of course, is quite funny. Because you have Geralt who pretends to be the opposite, but is mm. totally that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other main character introduced uh, last chapter, but, you know, becomes more of a main character in this chapter, and it's going to become a major focus, is Regis. Mm -hmm. My new favorite. We open with an excerpt about vampires, and um, there's about a thousand hints in this. Um, so I'm going to say there's no reason to call it spoilers, because it's not technically revealed until exactly. the next chapter. But, you know, he picked up a white-hot horseshoe with felt nothing. You do the math. Yeah. So Villagers are looking for a vampire in a graveyard, and we just met a guy the previous night hanging around a graveyard. Gee, <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection. Yeah, and I always love this. This is last chapter, chapter three. He invited them in. Yeah. <laughs> it's not nice. he who was invited in. He invited them. <laughs> it is a neat little joke. Um, and if you know, you know, and you're just like, <laughs> yeah. At one point, I did think he might have been a red herring because I was thinking, oh, the the priest or the town leader is making up a vampire so they can get away with the evil shit. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, when he grabbed the, the iron, it's like, ah, well, <laughs> there goes that there. It is pretty straightforward. <laughs> mm -hmm. What do you think of Regis as a character, not only as a doctor and a vampire, but also as the voice of reason for a lot of people? I mean, I just, I just naturally love goth characters, and a guy who hangs around a graveyard wearing a cape—that's <laughs> that's big goth vibe. So he was already my favorite from the get-go. But yeah, he has a lot of uh, really fun banter with the other characters, uh, and it's funny because you know, vampire—you think I want your blood, you know, bloodthirsty monster. But uh, in all this crisis, he's the most you know, sane, nicest guy there. You know, it's mm -hmm. the humans who are the bloodthirsty ones. So that's a really funny contrast there mm -hmm. uh you know the guy's like it's funny because he's you know human perspective he's 400 years old from the elves he's 600 he's seen a lot of things i'm sure he's seen so many conflicts and he's just kind of tired of it and i'm guessing at this point he's a more of a fuck around and find out kind of guy so when he sees you know a witcher going on a quest he's like oh this this guy intrigues me i'm gonna yeah. hang around and see where this goes yeah, if you notice, uh, in last chapter, when Dandelion lets slip, oh, we have a witcher with us? Yeah. He suddenly takes great interest in <laughs> uh, Sir Geralt and his, uh, his quest. Regis is a lot of fun. I did not get the reveal that he was a vampire because I had played Witcher 3 before I got into the books. It's how I got into the series, and he plays a major part in one of the DLCs uh, called Blood and Wine. <laughs> Very fitting. Yeah, and so, like, I already knew he was a vampire, and I had a lot of fun with that character, um, and so I was super excited to see him in the books, and, um, you know, there is something hilarious about the Witcher, the monster hunter, sort of becoming very good friends and almost philosophically bantery people, like, two, two very intellectually minded, two very, um you know, philosophically inclined people. And one of them's a monster. And one of them's a monster hunter. 
and there's there's a deep irony there. Mm. Um, and it's it, it's fun because this is, you know, it, it's all about outsiders with outsiders. Regis is the the vampire who's not a vampire. He doesn't drink blood anymore. He's abstained from many vices. He's uh, you know, he's the doctor who's not a doctor. He's a vampire. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, he's, he's the, he, he's the hermit who's not a hermit. You know, there's just a lot of fun to be had with the characters. There's a lot of great scenes coming up. Um, th of course the white ho uh, hot horseshoe is a very famous scene. Everybody remembers it. What, what I like is that not only do you have him with a good banter with everyone and you have that parallel between him and Geralt of the, the monster hunt and the monster who have become friends. But he and Dandelion have an interesting chemistry. Yeah. They are both observers. The poet and the vampire, the one who tries to abstain from interaction out of fear of his own bloodlust. So you have you you have the two observers who watch history and and sort of connect the dots. And so they have a fun chemistry where they bounce not only ideas off each other, but also quips and jokes and just casual observation. Um, so I, I just really love Regis's dynamic with everyone. <clears throat> and there, there's a lot of stuff coming up with him that uh, we, you know, we'll get more into in later books. But um, he, his, ent his entire thing is that, uh, you know, he's... He's just a doctor. He's just a guy, you know. No need to look behind the can the, the curtain, you know. Don't pay attention. <laughs> um, and I I just like that that it, it it it's cute because you have someone who's so comfortable with himself. In the same time, you have Geralt who's completely uncomfortable with who he is. Yeah. Um, and that that provides a nice contrast. Uh. So, um, you know, I just really love Regis. Um, you said he became your favorite. Well, you know, him and Dandelion neck and neck. <laughs> yeah, like, um, you know, you you've only read what three chapters with him. So what what is <laughs> yeah. yeah, what is the uh what what shot him up in the, the, the character stuff beyond the, the, the he's a vampire. Like I said, I'm just I'm a real big sucker for, for goth characters. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, he, he just feels so, as you say, an outsider to everything. You know, we just find him chilling around in a in a coffin. And mm -hmm. I don't know. At this point in the series, we've come across so many just rude, you know, vile characters. It's just nice every now and then to meet just a chill dude. You know, I kind of need that. I kind of mm -hmm. latch onto nice people in these kind of stories at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's mainly the next chapter that really makes him yeah part of the team. Yeah, we'll discuss that next episode, I'm sure. But uh, it's definitely that one that really, real uh, to put a pun to it, nail in the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he, he, he's just a very fun character, and yeah, uh, I, I I've said before to you in text, uh, you know, I want Peter Capaldi to play him. I know I'll never so agree. Yeah, yeah. Like at first, you weren't sure on that. I remember. I didn't have it in mind, but it, it was when he said, it, "I was like, ah, yeah, that's that's too obvious." Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, I, I've just ever since, uh, you know, uh, I I started reading these books around the end of Capaldi's tenure. Um and uh, as the doctor, uh, for context, because I just mm -hmm. realized I I'm talking to someone who very much knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah. but I also have a podcast that people probably don't know what I'm talking about. And so, um, and I loved that era so much, and so did my mom, and so we revisited a lot. And I'm just watching. I've been watching it, and just like, man, this guy needs to be Regis. I just see it so well in him. Yeah. Who knows what they'll do at the Netflix show? Who knows. If they'll even have him, I'm sure they will because, like that, that would be. Well, once again, it's the Netflix show, so who knows? Yeah, <laughs> seeing him and Joey Bates on the same screen would be a, a dream come true, I think, for me. <laughs> uh, th there's a lot coming in for this character. That's a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, but here we we get a sense, you know, the Mandrake chapter. We got him basically interviewing everyone else. You know, in, in a class interview with a vampire. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> in classic literature, you have you come across a new character. The new characters start asking them, you know, the twenty questions. We gotta know who you are, right? And mm. instead, we come across a new character, and the new character asks about the already existing characters. Um, and they they have to indulge him. And now we're getting more and more about him. And of course, next chapter, when everything hits the fan, if you didn't catch onto the literal thousands of hints this chapter, as well as <laughs> chapter three about his true nature. So my only other question for you is about the way in which um, Sipkowski shows war. And how Visigurd and Daniel Atreveri play play a part in that. Of uh, hmm. you, ha you have the grand rebellion, the resistance of Sintra, who their leader doesn't care for the Calanthe bloodline and hmm. thinks that they're all evil witches and like is doing this because. He's patriotic, but the patriotism comes from a place of own self-worth, rather than real patriotism. Um, and uh, you know, the in how Sintra, because fake Siri is you know off in in Nilfgaard and uh is being paraded around as Siri, you know, uh, they're getting more and more deserters, and so Tamaria is having to bulk up this resistance, but it's not really helping, and is actually causing more issues with Visigurd. Visigurd is a character from uh, A Question of Price, if you don't remember him. I remember, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what what's your thoughts on the way that is portrayed? I think he offers a really interesting uh, different perspective on the whole war. Uh, you know, have mm. to have someone outside of the, the home team, you know, the main cast within Falling Flask with Birks. And plus he furthers, you know, the themes of this chapter in particular. He's a guy yeah. who possesses great misogynistic and utter disrespect towards the royal family line, in particular the women of the Sintra Nine. Uh, he's calling them insistuous, you know, rotten vampires, mm -hmm. you know, which is quite uh, a common complaint for a lot of, you know, monarch, monarch families. You know, you're going to, yeah. it's a shallow gene pool, shall we say, <laughs> if you look too deeply. It's quite upsetting to see his views towards Siri, and it's not just him, other characters, even Milva, I just assume she's just going along with it, that she'll, you know, to quote, spread her legs willingly for Emir. Yep. And it's upsetting, because, you know, Siri, she's a, she's a child. It's sad to see them have such little respect towards a child's own anatomy. Uh, and we've talked about this in the past, about how that's an important part of her character, mm -hmm. how no one respects that. But at the same time, I can't entirely blame him for making that conclusion because, you know, we, get, we know Geralt, we know Siri, we've been following their story this whole time. We know the circumstances that led them to where they are. But from outsider's perspective, it would probably seem very shady, uh, just like as he's describing it, that she is, you know, that Geralt maybe manipulated her after she was lost in the war, that they're in league with Niflgaard and all that. Mm. So as as comfortable... Uh, and as we know, objectively wrong, these allegations are in universe. That would make sense. You know, that ties into the real world. You know, we only get a certain side of a, of a conflict, you know, abroad and certain sides of uh, aggressive acts here, in, you know, in our own countries. So he, I, he's not a nice character, but at the same time, you kind of get where he's coming from. Much ado was made back in the uh, question of price uh, about Calanthe's a uh, way of navigating the politics and becoming the sole ruler because women aren't allowed to rule in Sintra. That is the law. And so she navigated herself around that very cleverly um, and uh, basically pissed a lot of people off doing it. But she won the loyalty of people. And so now, without her and with Siri, you know, thought dead for a while, and then now... Um, supposedly, of course, we the audience know that's not Siri, but fake mm -hmm. Siri off in Nilfgaard, uh, you know, getting ready to, to become queen and potentially the Empress, you know, there, it's not hard from an outsider's perspective to draw the conclusion he did, mm. but it is also a condemnation of patriotism. I, at least that's the way I read it. Babylon 5 has a wonderful, wonderful line in season two. There's a difference between the position and the person currently holding the position. You can have respect for the position. You don't have to have respect for the person. Um, and um, 
and, and as as a, as an American, I fully understand that. Um, and you know, especially when I was watching B five, uh, it was during the twenty sixteen election. The idea here is that he wants to keep the status quo. He wants to believe in his country, but he has no respect for Calanthe and mm. Calanthe's entire line. And basically, he's using this as a way to prop himself up. And uh, one gets the sense that he's perhaps gunning for a position of power. And the idea, I think, you know, reading from my own perspective, is how jingoism and patriotism can take many forms. Sometimes, you know, patriotism is a good thing. You respect for your homeland, the people in it. Patriotism, to the extreme, is nationalism. The belief that your place is better than everyone else's. And then jingoism is the belief that yours is superior by all means and you must dominate all. Mm. And so you get this sense that he's using that, not that he necessarily believes any of it, you know, uh, he mainly came up with the entire incestuous uh, Calanthe thing and, and Siri thing because of uh, the, the mass desertions he was getting. So there's this hint that maybe he doesn't honestly believe everything he's saying, but he's holding it up to look good and mm. to basically give himself more authority, give himself more power. And maybe he's vying for something when uh, Sintra is released from Nilfgaardian control. Um, and you know, it is, it's how, it's how in the military, especially, but in various other, uh, organizations and in other occupations, patriotism is a sign of goodness, whether it actually means anything or not. Um, and how patriotism should mean something, but people like Visigurd, dilute the meaning of patriotism um and don't don't respect the position they don't respect the people in the position and they don't really respect the country they just sort of use that as a blanket defense daniel etcheverry as well like he isn't perfect he's more of a patriot than um uh than Visigurd is even though he's not sentient but he also is the kind of person who is enabling someone like Visigurd, he sits by, he knows that the claims are false. Does he care? No, not really. He's he's going to ensure his job, and his job means he needs to stick there, and he needs to maintain a certain level of respect with Visigurd. And so, if he says, Geralt and Dedalion must die, Geralt and Dedalion must die. That's mm -hmm. as simple as that. Them's the Vakes. Yep, and that's that's how, within governmental structures, military, non-military, whatever, that's how people, you know, like Visigurd, or to make this more apt, you know, someone like Trump or uh someone like Boris, uh for your for your end of the world, mm -hmm. you know, gets into power is because they don't believe anything what they're saying. They use it as a blanket to cover up all their faults and then have people who just don't care hold them up. I think that is a pretty hard condemnation by Sapkowski about how patriotism is a good thing when used correctly, and a bad thing when used incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, that is follows in with his view of the war. You know, I talked about it's only the aftershocks. We never see the front lines. You know, we are seeing from the perspective, uh, I brought this up previously, you know, someone who grew up in Poland post-World War II. Poland had a very rough few years after that war. Uh, Warsaw was completely destroyed. They had to build it, uh, build it back up brick by brick. And so you're you're looking at a man who grew up in that and seeing the after effects of that. And he was never personally on the front lines. You know, he was born after the war ended. But he still grew up in that culture. He still grew up in the after effects. Um, and so you're seeing in that anxiety, I think, slip in how people take advantage of these situations, how people view these situations, and how the systematic structures don't do anything about it, and oftentimes mm. prop up the wrong people in an attempt to save face. It's quite an interesting parallel between um, Visigard and the priest, you know, the, the witch burner, how mm -hmm. they're both totally taking advantage, you know, pointing the finger 
at the wrong people, you know, in particular women. Mm. Uh, the, the priest has a whole spiel about, you know, they are tools of Satan. They only care for carnal lust and bloodlust. And it's like, well, mm. no, that's bullshit. It, this whole time, this whole book, we're hearing stories about men, you know, being the ones obsessed with sex and rape. You know, <laughs> you're the ones who are literally gathering a crowd, treating like a woman getting killed as entertainment. So it's that massive hypocrisy. And it's interesting to see that on that level on different scales, you know, one's more kind of, let's say, the local danger mm-hmm. and the other miller military, the higher authority. I, I know I've explained this before, but have you personally heard of the Do You Want to Buy a Brick? I remember the name, but I can't quite connect it to anything. So In Poland, after World War II, you know, they had to rebuild it brick by brick. And because of this, a lot of Polish people were very poor. Um, and they were swallowed up by the USSR, a lot of other stuff going on. So a lot of um, medium income to wealthy uh, people from other countries that weren't hurt as bad by the war, you know, uh, Czechs and others would come in and basically with a brick and say, you want and go up to poor Polish people and go, you want to buy brick. And uh, and uh, the the story goes uh you know we don't know if the the next part is true or not that uh basically if they said yes they would be hit the brick it's about how in these times in uh times of recovery in times of aftermath the authorities the the people in power turn a blind eye because they have other things to worry about um and thus people like the priest like Visigurd could take advantage of that and point the finger at whoever they want. They could point a finger at uh, a religious group, uh, you know, a gender, minority, etc. And uh, and it will be taken at face value uh, because they have no one to tell them no. That, I think, is playing into that. You know, uh, Spiaski didn't grow up in Warsaw, so uh, and that was primarily a Warsaw-type thing. Uh, but, uh, he, he did grow up not too far from there, so, and I'm sure that, that the, the embellishments of that story has grown, you know, especially if you live in that country, I'm sure it's, it's very well known. So, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's playing into that, sort of that, that anxieties that he grew up in, and the way people took advantage of things, and the way people blamed the blameless, for something that they had no control over because it was easy. And I, I think that is uh, what the, the duality of uh, the priest and the Invisigurd, as you were saying, the local danger and the higher authority, both effectively doing the same thing. Hmm. That was all my questions for you. Do you have anything for me? I have something. I'm not best sure how to phrase it, but uh, there's an, a line of choir I like to follow that kind of ties into... Uh... The themes of this chapter and discussions we've had in the past regarding uh, feminism and uh, you know sexual inequality. So throughout the series, there's a lot of sexual assault, a lot of mentions of, of mm-hmm. rape. Uh, you know, Siri is in now a very toxic relationship. That's sadly a trend I think I see a lot of in you know stories written by men when they try to portray women is. For some reason, their reasoning to make a strong female character is have awful things like sexual assault happen to them. Uh, for another example, I'll go to comic legend Alan Moore and his series uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yep. It's a series I like a lot. It's very inventive with how it mashes all these iconic British stories together. But then you've got the main one of the main characters, uh, Mina Hawkins, the, the, the character from Dracula. Uh, and in, in nearly every issue, she gets sexually assaulted by a character, the Invisible Man, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, later on, there's this really weird psychic ghost thing which uh, talks about how it, I won't get too into it. It's pretty grim. Yeah. Uh, and it's ugly. It's a really ugly blemish on an otherwise you know, colorful, inventive story. And it's kind of morbidly interesting to me that this is the direction writers will go. And I'm just wondering if you have any theories on why you think that is the case. Is it entirely necessary to have this, these kind of topics in the stories? Do you think it f- funnels into like real world, you know, atrocities uh, soldiers have committed? Anything like that? That's a that's a difficult one. Yeah, I was aware it would be, but I just yeah, it was something I I felt could be could go into. Um. So 
the the thing is is that I read a lot of very dark fiction. My favorite uh, genre is noir, and that that mm-hmm. has an inherent link to a lot of sexual themes. This as well, a lot of uh, a lot of comics I read, etc. And I've heard many complaints. I did a retrospective with someone who talked about the the abundance of sexual assault and rape in these books, and I understand exactly what she was talking about, you know, and I understand why people would be adverse to it. However, I think Puritan culture has wrapped us in the inability to understand certain things. One of that is that when the author writes something, that does not mean that they condone it. Um, And online outrage is, of course, online outrage, and we've seen it a thousand times, and it will continue to happen because it's just a modern form of mob yelling. People want to blame someone, quite fitting, considering the chapter. Um, And so we glom onto this. I I, I saw, you know, not too long ago, someone complaining about a very, very well-known comic book writer um for something that was not her fault and she was came out of the villain's mouth and was clearly not something being condoned but because it was in the issue therefore it is the viewpoint of the author according to this person i just have a problem with puritan culture in general i think it's okay to talk about bad subjects and i think it should be okay to talk about bad subjects the there are tropes that need to be discussed the bury your gaze type thing whatnot i understand uh but sometimes the uh, the trying to combat these negatives we overcompensate so anytime a gay character dies now it's a bury your gay even if it fits thematically even if it fits narratively. So in effect, you can't kill off gay characters. And that inherently does not work for fiction, because fiction is conflict. Um, and so with the sexual assault thing, I can understand. You know, there are real victims out there who do not want to be reminded of their own trauma. But there's also others who, seeing their trauma portrayed in fiction, allows them to overcome it. I was brought to tears when I was watching a documentary on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And there is a there's a character in it, uh, played by the actor Aaron Eisenberg. Uh, the name is Nog. And in one of the later seasons, uh, Nog got a, uh, his leg blown off in a war story. And because uh, this show was attempting to tackle that kind of thing... Uh, they deal with ramifications of this young man, this soldier now, um, in a wartime scenario, losing a part of himself. And uh, Aaron Eisenberg talked about in this documentary how real soldiers, real heroes, real people who put their life on the line for us, uh, came up to him and thanked him for his betrayal. And he's just a guy playing an alien on a science fiction show. But that's the power of fiction. It has the ability to shape our world in ways that we don't fully understand. Civilizations rise and fall because of fiction. It has the ability to heal. It has the ability to harm. And it's all about the ways in which you approach it. And I think it's important that these uh, things get discussed, albeit with a warning, um, probably uh, for some people to uh, indicate that it might not be for them, but it is important. And as long as people understand that the author is not condoning this behavior. As far as the overwhelming amount of fiction writers who are happen to be male and write this, I think that is certainly an issue. Um, you know, we do need more diversity in our uh, fictional realms, uh, both gender and minority-wise and sexuality-wise, etc. It, it's a thing where it's difficult, because who is genuinely doing it out of the want to talk about these things, and who is doing it just because of shock value? That That's a hard line to toe, and I, mm. and I can't tell you. Um, I'm just a 24-year-old idiot, but what I can tell you is that, as a writer myself, those who are genuine want to portray sides of humanity and talk about this and say, hey, this is what we do to each other. And uh, in some way help, if at all possible. Um, 
Danny O'Neill, one of my favorite writers of all time, very famous comic book writer, he gave an interview when he was writing Green Arrow, Green Lantern, which is a very famous comic. You probably know, but uh, the, mm -hmm. the podcast listeners, it's about Green Arrow and Green Lantern going on a road trip across America. Um, and all the issues are from direct headline stuff at the time. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, drug epidemics, etc. It was it was a very brutal and honest look about what superheroes in this world would see us as. And sure, you know, it 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 maybe from a modern view, it comes off as a bit, you know, um, ham-fisted. But in the seventies, that was hard-hitting shit. And um, the thing is, is that in that interview, he said, if I was twelve years old. And I was reading this, maybe it would make me want to do something. I didn't have that. And so that's my impetus is to tell the 12 year olds this is a problem. We must deal with it. This is your world. Um, problems won't go away by pretending they don't exist. Problems only go away when we deal with them. And um, I fear. For the world we are inching ever toward, uh, closer towards because of the the advent of social media, of the Puritan culture, of the this thing can't have X, Y, and Z because blah, 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 or whatever. And some of that criticism is understandable and some is not. And fiction shouldn't be hindered by that. It should be willing to tell the hard truths. It should be willing to say these things. Um, and some are done better than others, certainly. But in my firm opinion, I do not think any topic should be off the board for fiction. As long as it's handled correctly. Um, as far as the strong female character in regards to the sexual assaults, yes, that is a problem. But also, sexual assault is very common uh, and I know a lot of people who have personally went through that stuff. Um, so, like, it's it's a thing where, yeah, that is a problem, and we should, you know, in not only infection, but in real life, and we should probably do some shit about that. But also, it's trying to portray the genuine human experience. You know, uh, we both like superheroes. Su superhero mm -hmm. the superheroes are outlandish, childish stories, right? They're also very intentionally metaphors. Um, Superman is uh, Moses, you know, and it, you know, it's not trying to be anything else. I think we get, we get a hair up our ass about things being portrayed in certain ways. And stay in your lane. Only people who are of a certain group can say these things. And I think that is disingenuous because everyone can have the same experience. Everyone can look at things from different and sometimes same ways, and a multitude of voices is what makes us good. To quote Star Trek, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. That is what makes us stronger, and I think that pigeonholing people and saying, you can only write this, you can only write that, I think reduces our ability to expose truth because that is fiction a lie that tells the truth that's my best way of navigating that question i think you did a truly excellent job <laughs> i mean you you asked the question so obviously you have a viewpoint what is that it's a topic that comes up in our stories and while i think it can get uh overused a lot at this point i think this I think the series is oh, it's reaching that limit for me personally, mm -hmm. but I, I agree with a lot of the points you've been making. I know, for example, uh, you know, I've written stories myself that have really helped me vent out a lot of issues I have, and I 100% agree with how important stories are. Uh, and since we've got the opportunity, uh, I want to take this chance to quote one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite authors, Terry Pratchett. Uh, in you know, he he has the incredible Discworld series, uh, one of the books in that series, Hogfather. Uh, you know, Death is talking to his granddaughter and they have a conversation about how they need, fan you know, humanity needs fantasy. And she's asking, people need fantasies to make life bearable. And Death is like, well, I, as if it was some kind of pill. 
no, humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Uh, and I think that's an extremely intricate and beautiful line, a beautiful way of looking at fiction. And that really ties into what you were saying. So I think what you said have really helped me put it uh, into more better perspective on what that means for other people. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it, it's a very, very good, but also very difficult question you asked. And yeah. uh, there is legitimate criticism to be had here. And I'm not trying to jump at the defense and say, oh, rape is okay in fiction, blah, blah, blah. No, no. It needs to be handled with care. And I can understand yeah. someone who does not want that seeing Witcher and seeing the overabundance of it. That is that is a fair criticism. I think it all feeds into Ciri's larger arc, especially, and her lack of agency and her trying to claim her agency back. But for some people, that doesn't do it. And that's that's fine. Art is subjective. But I think that there is you know, this is sort of a microcosm of a larger thing, and we as a society have been wrestling with it for quite some time, and the the advent of the internet has only exacerbated the issue to the point that, it, you know, it, there's a lot of uh, troubling circumstances being set, um, especially on the internet, uh, around these type of topics, and I think it is a warrant of discussion, and that um, there is a middle ground to be had here. Maybe I'm a bit too optimistic, but um, you know that's that's what I genuinely believe. Um, as far as The Witcher and its uh, you know relationship to this, I say maybe we check back in on this uh, in Lady of the Lake mm -hmm. um, because I think that really the the entire thing around Ciri and her agency and the sexual assault stuff really comes in the focus in that book to a point that it clicks for me in a way it didn't click for Claudia. So it may not click for you, it may will. So, you know, we may check back out on this. But uh yeah, I that very difficult question. Hopefully I navigated it well and uh and made sense and uh, I think it did. Yeah. yeah. And so um do you have any other questions? Nope, I, that was my one big bullet, uh, and you handle it marvelously. Uh, thank you for joining me once again, Josh, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and thank you, the listeners. We will uh, be back for Chapter 5 of Baptism of Fire, which Josh will also be on as well. So mm -hmm. uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.